0: Uh, Join me in your copy of God's Word, uh, Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we're just going to look at one verse there, and then we've got some other verses that we'll put up on the screen, but Romans chapter 15, verse 30. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a remarkable British preacher, born in 1834 and became one of the greatest preachers of all time. He came from a flourishing country pastorate, in 1854, he accepted a call to Pastor London's New Park Street Chapel. The building soon proved too small, and so work on the new Metropolitan Tabernacle was begun in 1859. Meanwhile, his weekly sermons were being printed and having a remarkable sale. 25,000 copies a week in 1865, and being translated into more than 20 languages. Spurgeon Built a metropolitan tabernacle into a congregation of over 6,000 and over the course of years added an additional 14,000 members during his 38-year ministry in London. The combination of his clear voice, his mastery of language, his grasp of scripture, and his deep love for Christ produced some of the noblest preaching of any age. Preached an astounding three thousand five hundred and sixty-one sermons, and those sermons are still available today. In fact, the volumes of, of uh, print that have been consumed are, are he's the he's the most published writer of uh, a Christian writer of all time, um, and you can still still read those today. It's estimated that he preached to ten million people in his day, and when he died in eighteen sixty-two. It was reported that 60,000 people came to pay homage during the three days his body lay in state at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. There was a funeral procession that was two miles long that that snaked its way through London, and 100,000 people stood along the way and watched as this man was laid to rest. Uh, London, uh, the southern part of London, basically shut down. Shops and pubs were closed. Flags were flown at half-mast. Out of great affection for the man who was known then and now as the Prince of Preachers. But for all his preaching abilities and gifts, it was not his oratory abilities that he looked upon as to what made their church so successful. It was not his ability to captivate a crowd for a long period of time with his spellbinding sermons that made such an impact on London during his days. If you would have visited his church and he gave you the opportunity to give you a tour, he would have shown you the real key towards the success of that church. He would have taken you to a basement room uh, below the church and would have shown you a place where men and women gathered 24 hours a day to pray for the ministry of the gospel to go forth in London. And he would have looked you in the eye and said, This room right here, this is the real powerhouse. Of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, we must understand that in order to accomplish anything for God, anything that 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 fulfills the Great Commission, it must begin with heartfelt, passionate prayer. And this morning, that's the title of the message: is praying with passion. And we we see here. Uh, first off, in our study today, a call for passionate prayer. To not be people who are flipping about prayer—that it's that it's merely an afterthought—but that God wants us to be men and women who have a deep-seated fervency to cry out to God. And the verse we want to just have as our centerpiece today is Romans fifteen thirty, where Paul writes toward the end of this letter, and he says, "I appeal to you, brothers." By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul called the Christians there to strive together with him in prayer. That verb that's translated there with a phrase in the English language, strive together with me. It means to contend along with someone or to fight side by side. To go into battle with someone. And Paul said, I want you to enter into the fray with me in this matter of prayer. See, we're all attracted by by passion. They don't write books about people who could care less. History rarely remembers people who have no fire in their souls. World changers have passion down deep. And it's no less true of those saints who are most, most faithful in prayer. There is a fervency, there is an urgency, an angst, if you will, to their crying out to God. And that's what the Apostle Paul calls for here in Romans 15:30 is for us to be passionate in prayer, to fight alongside other believers in this great work. Second thing I want you to write down, though, is but there's some examples of passionate prayer in Scripture, and I think this will help us as we think about being men and women who pray with the kind of fervency that, that Charles Spurgeon's people prayed with and the kind of fervency that God calls us to that we see in the New Testament. One place you could look is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, As we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He says, we can't thank God enough for the joy that we have for you. And he says, we pray earnestly, most earnestly. There's that passion. And he says, we do it night and day. He qualifies or he adds to the thought or expands the thought. Not only is he praying passionately, let me tell you how we're doing that. God keeps us awake at night because we're so burdened for your soul's, For your hearts. What fervency. I want that. I want that kind of earnest longing to pray. And I hope you do too. There's another place in Colossians chapter 4. Where Paul tells the the Colossian Christians about a man who's praying for them. This man is uh, named Epaphras. And he says, Epaphras, who's one of you. So apparently he had grown up in Colossae and moved away. He says, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you and he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras so believed in prayer and was so concerned about the hearts of the Colossian Christians, he said, I want you to know that this man is struggling on your behalf. You get the picture here with these words when we bring them together? Praying most earnestly, struggling on your behalf. Romans says, striving together. There's this, this there's a couple, couple things coming together. There's a unity, so it's, it's people praying together. But there's a fervency, there's an urgency to the prayers. That, like something serious is at stake here. And Epaphras recognized that. And he prayed passionately for the Colossians to become mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This month, as we've spent a lot of time thinking and talking and putting the spotlight on prayer, one of the questions that has arisen in my own heart is how can I pray more like like that? How do I become a man who, who struggles on behalf of my family, you, my community, our missionaries we support this week. Our prayer guide has us praying for our nation. How can I be that kind of person who prays in such a way where we're like it feels like I'm doing battle, like I'm all into this. There's an urgency involved, and I, I don't know that I I have the answer. But as I as I spend some time in scripture, I I found at least a few ingredients that I, I think kind of go into being a person who's passionate. In prayer. And I want you to know that I'm here in the middle of learning this, and God is convicting and working on my heart, because this is an area where there's just, I just have so much need to grow. And, and, I, and I wrote down just two ingredients, and we'll look at them and, and kind of pull back the layers a little bit. I think we pray passionately, first of all, when we sense a great need. And then we pray passionately when we're reminded we have a great God. And that first one I want to look at here is a great need first ingredient to praying passionately. Now, there are some times when the need is obvious, right? If you have a child who is deathly ill and you're rushing them to the emergency room and you're you're waiting as the doctors are working on them. I still remember when uh, our youngest, Owen, was just about six or seven weeks old and he had something called pyloric stenosis. I won't go into it now, but you can Google it later. And, And it became a very serious condition. And the doctor told us, we need to get him to the children's hospital immediately. They've got a bed waiting for you. And my wife uh, drove from Claire. We were, she's like, I'm driving. <laughs> Mama Bear's driving. And uh, I think we got to Grand Rapids to the Helen DeVos um, uh, Hospital there in about an hour and 15 minutes <laughs> from here, I, roughly. And we were cooking. And uh, we got there, and they got Owen in the, in the room. And immediately, he'd become so weak, um, immediately he uh, stopped breathing, and um, we just got, we, they, there were doctors just all of a sudden right there surrounding him. And we just kind of huddled in the corner. We were just crying, crying out to God for our little baby. And um, by God's grace, they got him, got him going and he hasn't stopped going ever since. And uh, in those moments, right, we all can be fervent, earnest prayers. When, when there's a serious, trial, when there's a major issue, maybe it's a financial need, you're about ready to lose your house, when when there's a health need and your loved one's dying, we can become people who are very fervent in prayer. So there's needs that, that come about. The, the need's obvious. There's a there's some situations like this in scripture. One of them I wrote down was Nehemiah. Nehemiah was, was uh, if you've never read his story, he helped really just Lead the, lead the charge in getting the people back um, in, in the city rebuilt um, in, after the 70-year captivity. But um, Nehemiah, the, the people had been allowed to go back, so some of those in exile had gone back. Nehemiah was living and in, in ministering uh, still in, in, um, among the Persians at the time, and it's said that he, um, he heard, it said it happened in the, in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, and I, one of my brothers, came in with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. So he wanted to know how life was going back in the homeland. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates are destroyed by fire. So immediately, Nehemiah was confronted with an emergency of sorts. He hears terrible news that there are problems going on among those uh, who have returned from exile. And, And his heart is broken. He's moved deep down. And look what he does. He prays. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I hope that when you're confronted with an emergency or a great need, that you do go to God in prayer. That Rather than worrying and fretting or complaining or trying to fix it yourself, that your first place you go to is the throne of God. There are so many other instances of this in Scripture. I just wrote down a few. Uh, There's Hannah praying for a child in 1 Samuel 1. She was barren. And she was praying so fervently and passionately on the steps of the temple that Eli, the priest, actually thought she was drunk. She was so into into crying out to God. There's another situation in 2 Kings 19 where Hezekiah finds out the Syrians are coming and there's imminent destruction awaiting he and his people and the king goes before God and cries out for protection from the invading enemies and God answers his prayer. Uh, Last week we mentioned David and Bathsheba and one of the consequences for David's wickedness and disobedience was that God said his child would die. And in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, verses 15 through 17, we see David crying out before God that God might change his mind and somehow preserve the life of that child. We see uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke twenty-two forty-four, crying and praying out that, so that he's sweating drops of blood. We see in these moments of great spiritual heaviness or great trauma where God's people go to him because there's a great need. It's right there in front of them. But I asked myself, oh, how do we maintain a fervency to prayer when the need is not so obvious? How do you pray like my wife and I were praying as our child stopped breathing? How do you pray like that the rest of the time? When life seems to be going okay, when, when things are not off the rails, it's just an average day at work, it's just an average day at home, the normal tensions or butting of heads or, or just, you know, you're paying the bills and you're taking kids to soccer practice and you're just doing life. How can we maintain fervency in our prayers? Because if you notice, the passages we read from the New Testament about Epaphras from Colossians 4 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and then here, if you still have your Bibles open to Romans 15:30, notice these are not typically what we would think of as emergency issues. Nobody's on their way to the hospital, nobody's at risk of getting foreclosed on. All of these were spiritual needs. <laughs> Did you notice that as we read them? Even back here in Romans 15:30, he says, um, I appeal to you, brothers. Uh, to strive together with me in prayers. And his whole, his whole goal is to be delivered from unbelievers in verse 31, and then being able to have, uh, be able to serve God faithfully in Jerusalem. He's praying for spiritual needs. Epaphras was praying for the Colossian Christians to, to uh, stand mature before God and fully assured in the will of God. Uh, will of God. Their earnest prayers, their passionate prayers were rooted in spiritual needs. So I've been asking myself, Lord, how can I become a kind of person who prays for souls like I would pray for a deathly ill child? How can I pray for the spiritual life of my fellow Christians or my own heart the way that I would pray If we had no money to pay the bills, how do you pray earnestly for spiritual needs? When it doesn't feel like the house is on fire, how can you pray like the house is on fire? And I just wrote down a couple ideas. These aren't in your notes, just two of them. How do we pray with passion the rest of the time? The first idea is to pray anyway. (laughs) When you may not feel like praying, when you may not have an urgency to pray, pray anyway. In his ministry that was fueled by prayer, Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon one time, he said, if you do not pray except for when you feel like praying, you will not pray much, nor pray when you most need it. My brethren, when you do not feel like praying, you ought to pray all the more and go to the Lord to help you to pray. In those moments when we're apathetic, when we don't feel the fire under our feet, those are the moments when we need it the most. We can ask God to help arouse us from from our apathy, from our slumber, and to come to Him in prayer. In fact, I love the imagery that Spurgeon uses in another sermon on this very subject. He says we must get rid of the icicles that hang about our lips. We're just coming out of winter. We can kind of understand this. I think I saw some people in a few pictures this winter with with icicles hanging from their beards. Uh, We must get rid of the icicles that hang about our lips. We must ask the Lord to thaw the ice caves of our soul. I love that imagery. And to make our hearts like a furnace of fire heated seven times hotter. One of our prayers to God would be, Lord... Awaken my soul from slumber, melt the ice caves of my heart, so that I might come to you with passionate prayer. The second idea that I wrote down to remind us to pray passionately, even when we're not in the midst of what is an obvious great need, is to turn to the Scriptures to remember our needs. Turn to the Scriptures. To be reminded just how great the need is. Because here's the, here's the truth. Whether or not you feel like the house is on fire, the house is on fire. Whether or not you and I feel like we're in a battle, we are in a battle. There are real pressing needs every day that we need to ask God to give us eyes to see them like he sees them. What if you and I prayed for our lost neighbor the way that we pray for that sick child? What if you and I prayed for deliverance from spiritual bondage the way that you might pray when you don't have money to pay the bills? What if we prayed that way? What if we saw those needs as so serious that they should keep us awake at night in prayer? What if we were so concerned about the hearts and souls of our teenagers, or our kids, or, or, or that, that growing new believer, that we prayed, and prayed, and prayed, like everything depended on it, and we turn to the Word of God, we're reminded of like, like we're, we're jolted out of our apathy and we're reminded like how serious these spiritual needs are. When Paul says that he would stay awake at night and pray for the Thessalonians and that God might supply what is, what is lacking in their spiritual life, hey, that jolts us awake like, okay. Now he had all kinds of other churches to think about. He knew hundreds, thousands maybe of believers that had had come to Christ under his ministry. And yet there is this one church that he knew he had not not taught them as fully as he wanted to. There were some, some components missing to their understanding of the scriptures. And he says, it keeps me awake at night, your spiritual condition. I pray for you. I pray for you. When we turn to the word of God, just one more example, you you look at Ephesians chapter six, for example, the apostle Paul says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There's a spiritual battle that goes on that for the most part, I'll be honest, it's not on my radar screen. I'm not very often thinking about an enemy who wants to see us stumble, to see us distracted, to see us to fall into sin and. Materialism and worldliness. Thinking about this and that. And when we read the word of God, we're reminded, oh my word, there's a battle waging for the souls of God's people and for the spiritual health of his church. What if that kept us awake at night with urgent, fervent prayer? When we turn to the word of God, we're reminded that the need is great. So we pray passionately when we see a great need. Would you pray this week with me going forward that God opens our eyes to the spiritual needs that we get as burdened for souls, for discipleship, for our missionaries, for our nation as we do in those, in those, in those moments of, of great pain or hurt. That God would awaken a fervent heart. James tells us that the the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. God calls us to be people who pray fervently and we will do that, I believe, when we see a great need. But the second reason I think we we can be spurred on to pray fervently is by thinking about a great God. When we reflect on the character and nature of God, and stand back in awe of who he is. I believe that our prayers can, uh, can be fueled. And fanned into flame. Charles Spurgeon once again. Says if we comprehend the greatness of the being. Before whom we plead. It would restrain all lightness. And constrain an unceasing earnestness in prayer. Spurgeon said if we just took a, took a step back. And we reflected on who God is it would constrain an unceasing earnestness in prayer you will never pray you and i will never pray with passion unless we have a passion for god we must come with an awakened sense of intimacy and awe ken geyer says everything in our life finds proper value once we have properly valued him we take time for what we value and we behold what we love it is not the duty of beholding that change us, changes us, though? But rather, the it is not the duty of beholding that changes us, though. But rather, the beauty of the one we behold. When we're captivated by God in all of His glory, we're drawn to Him in fervent prayer. Don't you long for more glory to see the glory of God? I was reminded of a of a line from a, a movie. Um, I don't know whether you've seen this or not, but there's a movie called Nacho Libre. It's a it's a comedy about a Catholic friar who's responsible for distributing food to Mexican orphans, and he's always wanted to be a professional wrestler, wrestler a luchador, and he's 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 uh, feels compelled that he can't do that because it would it would it's heaping glory on himself and that would take away from God's glory, and so. He finds a reason, though, to justify wrestling, and he's going to use the proceeds to help feed the hungry kids. But he needs a tag team partner. And so one day he's out, and this this skinny street kid uh, tries to rob him, and and he begins talking to this kid and uh, tries then to recruit him to be his tag team wrestling partner. And there's a line in there where this this kid is kind of ho-humming and apathetic and not really sure he wants to get in. And Nacho says, "'Aren't you tired of getting dirt kicked in your face?' Don't you want a taste of glory? <laughs> See what it tastes like? So often we as Christians are just so content with reading through a prayer list and, 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 and you know throwing up a few throughout the day, and, and we don't realize that there's a taste of glory available as we go before God into his presence. Almighty God! As I thought about reflecting on the character of God and how that could... Ignite more passionate prayer in our lives. I just I broke kind of broke it down by the three persons of the Trinity, and Spurgeon has some quotes about each one. the first The first thing I want us to remember is that there's a loving Heavenly Father. As you think about praying with passion and and how reflecting on the character of God ignites a greater love for prayer, we're reminded of the love that God has for us. There's a verse in Proverbs fifteen eight. This says the sacrifice of the wicked is detestable to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Did you know that your Father, your Heavenly Father, delights in hearing from us? Like, like he longs for you and I to come to him in prayer. That's amazing. He doesn't just tolerate it, he doesn't just allow it because he said he would. But he longs for us to come close to him. He loves to hear his children talk to him. And, and yet we come up with excuses why he might not want to, why we're not worthy, we don't, don't want to busy his time, or heaven forbid, we've got better things to do. And yeah, he says, I, I love Prayers at the operator. I want my children to come to me in prayer. Spurgeon echoes this in one of his devotionals. He says, only our, our God not only hears our prayer, but he also loves to hear it. He says elsewhere, do not let us go to God as though we were strangers or as though we were unwilling to give. We are greatly beloved. I think that if we really understood or began to understood just how beloved we are by the Father. We'd spend all day in His presence. We would would long to bring the smallest, the seemingly the smallest of needs. We'd long to pour out our hearts. And we'd begin to see life from His eyes and see the needs around us. See that person who's struggling and hurting. See that that wayward believer. See that neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. Crying out for that missionary who's struggling on the field today with loneliness. Praying for our country's spiritual welfare. When you spend time with God, you recognize how much He loves to hear us. Meditate on that this week. Meditate on how much the Father loves you. We're not going to stop there because... We want to draw attention to the Spirit. There's a powerful Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you go back to Romans 15, 30, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. He appeals on the basis of the Spirit. I'm, I don't even, I don't fully understand this, but the Spirit of God, in some miraculous way, empowers our praying. There's some verses, and I didn't put them on the screen, but there's some verses like Ephesians 6 18 where we're told to pray at all times in the Spirit. Jude verse 20 says, Pray in the Holy Spirit. Uh, One writer says that this, this praying in the Spirit means that the Spirit empowers our prayers and carries it to the Father in the name of Jesus. This prayer has a living quality characterized by warmth and freedom and a sense of exchange. We realize that we're in God's presence speaking to God himself. And the spirit illuminates our mind and moves our heart and grants a freedom of utterance and liberty of expression. I don't fully understand what it means to pray in the spirit. But there is a very real sense that as we are connected and communing with God's spirit, he awakens that love and that joy and that earnestness in our hearts. So all of a sudden we begin to want to talk to God. And we recognize that those prayers are infused by God's power as they go forth to the Father. There's something miraculous and supernatural happening when we look to God's Spirit for a fervency and an urgency in our prayers. Furthermore, the Spirit also has this ministry. It's mentioned in Romans chapter eight. And it says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should. Have you ever felt like that? God, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to pray. Here's just like an extra bonus when it comes to prayer and communicating with God and the ministry of the Spirit. It says the Spirit intercedes for us. So we're weak, we're struggling, we don't know how to pray, we run out of words. The Spirit is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what, the mind, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's just, just try to think about this for a second. This means that not only is God hearing you pray, but God is also hearing His Holy Spirit pray on your behalf. I don't know about you, but we we've got we've got four boys, so there's six people in our house. And sometimes I'll come home from a, a date at the office, and the kids have, have all gotten home from school, and they'll be like everybody's talking at once. And I'm not a very good multitasker, it is, but I can't understand what all these voices mean that are coming at me. They're like, they're like everybody, all right, stop for a second. One at a time now. One at a time. You go first, alright? Go. And then move on to the next one. You go. But God Himself, the Father, not only is hearing all the prayers of all the saints at the same time, but even for you, there's multiple prayers going up at once. It's like, it's mind-boggling. Your prayers, people praying for you, and then on top of that, the Holy Spirit praying for you and praying uh, in your stead when you can't find the words. It's unbelievable. that the, the, the Trinity... The triune God is so occupied on behalf of God's people. I mean, I hope that stirs your heart this morning. I hope if you came in here wondering if God cares about what you've got to say or about what's happening in your life, that the scripture right now is just by the spirit of God is dispelling that notion. Pushing all those thoughts out of your head that God couldn't care less. Because he really couldn't care more. He loves to hear his people pray, and his spirit is bringing these requests before him. On this topic, Spurgeon added, he said, I am sure that the only prayer in which the devout hearer can unite and which is acceptable with God is that which is really a heart prayer, a soul prayer. In fact, a prayer in which the Holy Spirit moves us to pray. All else is beating the air and occupying time in vain. God's Spirit wants to empower our praying, to ignite a passion for prayer. And then, lest we leave out the third person of the Trinity, we remember that there's a mighty Savior. A mighty Savior. God the Father loves to hear our prayers. The Holy Spirit loves to empower our prayers. And then we pray because we have a mighty Savior who has made the way possible. He's paved the way He's gone before us and allows us this, this free and unfettered access to his Father. Unbelievable. Have you ever gone to visit somebody important and you had to wait outside in a waiting room and somebody had to, had to buzz you in and had to wait your turn? You don't have to do that. Because of Jesus, you are boldly enter the throne room of grace, Romans Here in this uh, chapter 15, verse 30, this verse here, says, I appeal to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of Christ that we can strive together in prayer. Uh, On the screen, we've got Ephesians 3.11. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Um, Romans 8.34 tells us that even on top of that, Jesus is interceding for us. He longs for us to pray. And because of his work on the cross, he has made a way for us to come boldly into the throne room of grace. I'll close with a quote from Spurgeon, one last quote. He says, you may ring the bell as long as you ever will. The father will never weary of it. Tell him and tell him what his son has done. Remind him of Gethsemane. Bring up before the father's mind the cross of Calvary. Tell him of his promise to his son that he shall see his seed and have full reward. You cannot by any possibility displease God. By dwelling on this topic. Hold him with it. Yes. Hold him with the resolution of Jacob. And say I will not let you go until you bless me. For I plead the name and merit. Of your only begotten son. <laughs> Jesus carries a lot of weight in heaven. Because. He has. Gone. To the cross on our behalf. A fully. Acceptable sacrifice to God, has brought us near. I hope this month, as we've talked and thought about prayer, that that you have a longing, a a deep-seated longing to grow in prayer. I know I do, and I know I have a long, long way to go. If we want to be the kind of people who pray earnestly, who strive together in prayer for one another. For our homes, our families, our community, and our world. We need to remember that there's a great need. Ask God to awaken your your soul and open your eyes to the tremendous need. And then we need to remember that there's a great God. All that we would stand in awe of Him. That that we would have an urgent desire to cry out to Him. To be people who pray with passion. Let's close in prayer. Father, let us not settle for cheap substitutes, for for paltry exceptions, for the idols that this world throws, the the materialism and the the distractions that come our way. Lord, may we be captivated and, and gripped with a tremendous need that exists around us. May we be gripped by the the glory of communion with you so that we become people who pray earnestly. Lord, we know you want us to pray in times of great obvious need, when that need is right before our eyes and in those moments that we cry out to you and rely upon you. That's one of the things we're supposed to do. But Lord, would you... Would you give us the the, the spirit-fueled power to pray with that same urgency when life is kind of normal, when when things are not necessarily falling apart, when there's no big emergency, that we would remember the tremendous need, the tremendous God to whom we're praying, that we'd be drawn with great, great passion before the throne. Lord God, we have souls in our community who are on their way to a Christless eternity. We have teenagers who are being inundated with all kinds of trash that is pulling them away from Jesus. Or we have marriages who are struggling, those who are battling illnesses, who are stagnating in their walks and some who are encumbered by sin. Or would you give us hearts to pray with passion, with urgency, believing that you're here and that you'll answer. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we